My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Today, we have news that my teenage self would find impossible to believe. But it's true. Young people today are having less sex than they were in decades past. I am not basing this off one new study, though there is one we'll be talking about. I'm basing that on many many studies over the past half decade. These are studies that come from dating apps. They are studies that come from respected institutions. They are self-selected surveys. They are randomly selected samples. It doesn't matter. They all agree. And, crucially, they agree on one more detail. All demographics of young people are having less sex. Male, Female, non-binary, black, white, American, Canadian, doesn't matter. There are actual reasons for that. We'll get to them, I promise. But what we're here to discuss today is not so much why are all these young people having less sex, but more why, in a world where all sorts of people are not having sex, does everyone seem to care about one specific type of person that is not having sex. And what does that tell us about our priorities, politically and personally? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jude Ellison S. Doyle is an American feminist author. He's written Trainwreck and Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, and you can find more of his writing at judedoyle.medium.com. Hi, Jude. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Maybe we could start with some data today. We're going to talk about all the implications and all the narratives that come out of this stuff when a study comes out. Uh, But first, just describe the study we're going to talk about and the numbers that got everybody worked up about how much sex young men are having or not having. Right. So we're talking about the general social survey, which uh, the data in front of us is tracking the rate of sex that Americans are having from the year 1989 to the year 2018. And um, normally there is a certain percentage of Americans who will report not having had sex in the past year. Normally, those people are over 60 because, you know, in many cases they're widowed. But there is a slight uptick in young people not having sex. And unfortunately, since the highest percentage of young people not having sex in the year 2018 was men, this got quite a panicked response. But the fact is that this survey is not really big enough to draw any big conclusions. Number one, the number of people not having sex is not gone up that much. It was 19% of Americans in 1989. It's 23% in 2018. But the young men not having sex, um, there were fewer than 150 men under 30 even surveyed. And the number of young men who didn't have sex in 2018 is 
31. It's 31 guys. Right. Those poor guys. <laughs> well, we, we're assuming that none of them are in seminary school. We're assuming that none of them are asexual. We're assuming that none of them, you know, were in a coma. <laughs> mostly, uh, mostly I'm joking there, but but this was a big story when it came out uh, about a week ago. How was this data interpreted in the wider media? Oh, it was these 31 guys are responsible for the downfall of society. We shouldn't feel too, too bad for them. There was a lot of panic about how we are raising a generation of lonely young men, uh, the great American sex drought, which for some reason is, is only a problem when it affects men. Young women aren't having sex as much either, but that's not getting the headlines. There was commentary on social media about how, you know, that the increase in male loneliness was leading to more domestic violence, to mass shootings, to the insurrection on January 6th, to a lot of very terrible things that we currently have no data linking, Yeah, you know, to these 31 men in 2018 who had a dry spell. Where does that narrative come from, though? Because this isn't the only time that uh, a study like this has come out and the link that you just described between men, young men, not being able to find sexual partners and and turning to things that range from abuse to terrorism, frankly. How does that link get made and who's out there making it and why? Right. This comes from a lot of really strange essentialist ideas about uh, masculinity. The idea that young men are necessarily defined by their, you know, drive to have sex specifically with women. We're also assuming that none of these guys who, you know, struck out were gay. Um that young men need sex with women. Young men are entitled to sex and love and companionship from women. And when they don't have that, they necessarily have mental health spirals. They necessarily become violent. They necessarily basically just stop functioning and become active ticking time bombs. Um, and this is, it does not match up. Not only is it a pretty uncharitable way to see these these kids, it just, it doesn't match up with what we know about how this violence actually happens in the world. Where are the links, if we wanted to make them, between that kind of violence and what's happening? If it's not driven primarily by not getting laid, do we know what drives it? Or is it just, listen, a certain amount of people are awful? <laughs> well, I mean, I think there are sociological explanations for it. A tremendous number of, for example, the rioters on January 6th, they were 86% male, but they were 93% white. Um, incels and MRAs increasingly are in the fold of that white nationalist, you know, extreme right-wing movement. Most mass shooters are white. There is not only an ideology of violence, but an ideology of specifically masculine dominance here, where the people who commit these forms of violence, like domestic violence, which, by the way, you need a partner in order to commit. Um, it's it's not driven by sexlessness or loneliness or desperation. It is driven by a desire for power. Michael Kimmel has this concept of aggrieved entitlement that he uses to explain a lot of what we've been seeing. Um, and it's the idea that 
if you are a white man in America, you are sort of raised with the idea that everything should be easy for you. And that even if things aren't easy now, there was a time where you would have been guaranteed success. And therefore, if you are not succeeding now, someone is taking it away from you. That ideology of entitlement is way more responsible for radicalizing people and turning them into terrorists than, you know, not getting a date could ever be. Aggrieved entitlement, though, sounds uh, somewhat similar to something that was proposed in a couple of places and has been before, I gather, as I sort of looked into to this narrative uh, going back a while, which is uh, the idea of, of a right to sex. What is a right to sex and how the hell would that actually work? Has anybody actually proposed, like, practically or just as an idea? I think the person who first proposed this on Twitter um, is a political candidate who was trying in a roundabout way to argue for the decriminalization of sex work. But uh, her argument was, look, these young men are not having sex. They're going nuts. They're hurting women. Clearly, we need to establish a right to sex so that, you know, we're we're defusing the ticking time bomb. The problem is that this is a fundamentally, this is a conservative argument that's been made in the past. Ross Douthat, after the 2018 incel killings in uh, in Canada, he argued that sex workers and or sex robots should be conscripted basically to service the incels so that they wouldn't lash out. And the problem is that we don't have functioning sex robots, but we do have human sex workers. And we would be forcing them to literally just absorb these guys' violence. The odds are that if they are violent and driven by the need to dominate and humiliate and hurt women and girls, they're not going to stop that once they're in the room with a sex worker. That's that's likely to be a violent encounter. And it removes choice from the sex worker. You know, like the ideally, if you are working in relatively safe conditions, you get to choose who you see. <laughs> There's no way to argue for a right to sex without essentially establishing a class of rapable human beings and throwing them at the problem. When we talk about things like that, uh, whether, you know, somebody is using it as a hyperbolic example or not, what are we really talking about? And I mention this here because we're going to talk about incels in a second. And, and there's a lot of lament, I will say, around that group that you know, it's not like it was in the 30s, 40s, and 50s when women needed to find a man in order to thrive in society. And, you know, shouldn't women be required to find a partner and stick with a partner and blah, 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 right? Like, that, there's not a huge leap from right to sex to that viewpoint. Exactly. I mean, these kids, these guys, they are, because they're not all kids. I mean, there are many, many unhappy middle-aged incels and MRAs. And in fact, a lot of people will tell you that it's it's older divorced men who really drove the movement in its early days and still take up a lot of space within it now. But um, the incel logic is that men are owed sex and it's not really sex that they want in itself. They want sex as a symbol of as a symbol of dominance, rather, a symbol that they are winning at life. That's why it's important to not just have sex, but to have sex with a specific 
class of woman that they call a Stacy, who's, you know, like very traditionally blonde and white and zen and feminine and pretty and known for only dating high status men. The idea that men are owed women not so much as partners, as people to talk to, as people to sleep with, but as possessions that show that their masculinity is intact and that they're, you know, at the top of the heap. When we talk about these guys that you just described, you know, we use the term incel, and I feel like that term has grown and evolved in even just a matter of its visibility in the years since most of us became aware of it, which I guess was probably for most listeners, um, either around the Elliot Rogers shootings in America or up here in Canada, as you mentioned, you know, the Toronto van attack. Elliot Roger was the first sort of widely known incel killer. And um, like the Columbine killers, he's become sort of uh, an outlaw hero for a certain set of really scary people. Um, there were sort of incel-ish or MRA-ish killings before Elliot Roger, but he sort of catapulted that into the mainstream. And there has been significant growth in the subculture. Um, again, internet culture has really facilitated the rise of the manosphere and the rise of these really extreme, organized, ideological misogynists. Um, they were around in the 90s, but there was, you know, not not nearly enough of them to make a dent in the culture. There's a lot of them now, and they have popular media platforms, they have their YouTube channels, they have their Reddit boards, and they are increasingly, again, I would say ever since 2014 in Gamergate, the manosphere has been basically an extension of the fascist internet. You know, that uh, this is this has always been a really potent way to recruit young people to, you know, fascist ideologies is to start with the more intimate forms of domination. There wasn't it great in your grandpa's day when your grandma couldn't work and she was required to give your grandpa whatever he wanted, you know, and then just to sort of to work on that white entitlement and to draw them further and further into the sort of organized violence that does lead to uh, to January 6th, that does lead to mass shootings, uh, that does lead to, you know, driving a van into a crowd of people or going on a spree killing. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. When we see uh, these kinds of studies and the discussions that come out of them that inevitably, like ours just has, you know, takes a turn towards uh, incels and and mass killings and all sorts of misogyny, um, are the studies showing us a demand for physical sex that's not being met? Or is this about loneliness and we interpret it to be sex because, frankly, it's a better headline and a narrative? Right. I mean, the the way the study was interpreted was these young men aren't having sex, and that means that they're having mental breakdowns. And I mean, the other way you could interpret this is that 
people who are struggling in life are having trouble finding relationships, which is a much more commonsensical thing. Mm -hmm. We operate on this assumption that men are like these sort of, (laughs) they're like fueled by sex. Like you have to just keep a steady stream of girlfriend and specifically sex with women, you know, coming in or they'll break down and malfunction and just, you know, it'll be Westworld. They'll just go berserk and kill everybody. That, that entitlement and that, myth that there's only one proper response to being single or rejected or lonely and it's to lash out violently. That specific idea of masculinity and the idea that you can either assert yourself by having sex with a woman in a dominating, you know, often kind of violent way or by literally just committing violence on whoever you can lay hands on. That is where the violence comes from. We need to challenge that ideology because the idea that young men or anyone for that matter, automatically breaks down and experiences, you know, massive consequences if they don't have sex. It just, it it doesn't line up with any view of reality. There's no causality that's been established there. How do we challenge that in the face of such a dominant narrative? How do we get news outlets when a story like this comes out to look at those 31 men or however many and and try to figure out what they actually need rather than than take this story and run with it? Right. And I mean, one way you can, you know, do it is to point out all of the people who aren't getting violent. Women have committed almost no mass shootings ever. If you look at the, you know, the graphs, it's something like 97% male shooters. Because we don't expect women to lash out violently when they're marginalized. We expect women to tolerate that. Men of color are not committing the majority of mass shootings. Men of color were not there on January 6th because they're not served by this ideology of white patriarchal dominance. There's nothing that you have to gain from it. We expect people who are on the bottom rungs of society or who are marginalized to learn how to tolerate distress and learn how to tolerate marginalization. And in fact, we expect them to tolerate it so well that we can pretend they're not actually suffering. There's got to be, there's no way that every single, single man who is not having sex in the United States of America under the age of 30, they can't all be white straight guys, but it's the white straight guys that we associate with that number because they're the ones whose comfort and happiness we are conditioned to care about more than anything else. And it's them that we are all sort of societally encouraged to coddle and just, you know, treat it like a spoiled toddler, give it whatever it wants, or it's going to have a tantrum. Like if we were actually (laughs) operating under the assumption that every human being uh, reaches adulthood and becomes morally culpable for their own actions, and every human being hopefully is able to develop some level of distress tolerance so that having a bad day doesn't wind up in murder territory, then we would not be freaking out about these men. We would be freaking out about the violent ideologies that are trying to recruit men with the idea that they are owed sex and deference. That brings us to the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which is, are these men being used by the political movement that you kind of just described? Because there there is a reason that 
they are the loudest voice in the room when we talk about who is lonely and who is not, or, you know, who needs sex and care and who gets it. And there's no question that, like, they're valuable to a core constituency of uh, your politics in the U.S. Right. And I mean, I think that this is something where, like, as a trans person in, in the United States of America, sort of the battle to restore traditional masculinity has been very visible and very frightening to me for some time. Um, there is sort of this boys in peril, men in peril, men disenfranchised and, you know, end of men narrative that just it kind of keeps cropping up no matter what. Christina Hoff Summers has peddled it. And there's, you know, there's some new book out there that's just like the war on boys, the end of men and boys. You know, it's it, it's every few years somebody publishes that specific sociological analysis that it's no longer super easy to be a white man in America. And therefore, every white man is having a mental breakdown. And what can we do to save them and help them? And it, it's, again, most of those analyses are not actually looking at gender in any way. Um, they're not actually looking at the many ways in which, you know, people of all genders are struggling. They are making a soft pitch for let's restore, let's make, you know, men great again. Let's make white guys great again. Let's restore a version of the world where these men were comfortably assured a safe, happy, successful middle-class lifestyle and a family at everyone else's expense. You know, the idea that if that's not happening, again, it's a grieved entitlement. It's the Kimmel concept. If that's not happening, it can't just be that the world is changing. It can't just be that things are tough on everybody and outcomes are more equally distributed now. It's just that someone is taking away what these white men deserve. And nobody has actually asked these poor 31, you know, single guys what they think of this. <laughs> they don't really have a voice in this. Nobody's come forward to be like, yes, that's me. I, you know, I was overseas in 2018 and I didn't speak the language and I didn't get a date. Sure. You know? <laughs> so we have no, no proof that these young men would support the ideological conclusions being drawn from their existence. Uh, we just sort of assume that if young men who we unconsciously think of as young, straight, cis, white men aren't getting everything they want, something has gone terribly wrong. Okay, well, it's funny to, to mention talking to those 31 men specifically, but to look at it from a larger point of view, how do we talk to, um, I guess, the men that are in these movements or maybe even not going that far, the men who are vulnerable to this kind of narrative. You know, you drew an analogy a little while ago about a toddler throwing a tantrum. And uh, I think I know from following you on Twitter, you have a toddler, so do I. You have to deal with the tantrum somehow. And there's a whole bunch of different ways you can deal with it. But one thing you can't do is give in. So what do you say to them to to try to pull them out of the narrative that's not you're right. It should be like it was in the 50s. Let's trigger, try to figure out a way to get you exactly what you need, buddy. You know? Right. I mean, I'm not I'm not an incel whisperer. Um, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> that I mean. Sure. No, you have to solve all their problems. Right exactly. Now before we no, I mean, I think if you put me in the room with them, I would I would probably make the problem worse. I'm not very good. In that in that Fair sort enough. of situation, because I think that once somebody has committed 
to an ideology of violence and hatred and dominance. You know, you're on your own. You made this choice. Let's see you. Let's see you dig your way out of this one, buddy. Because I'm not. I'm not here to bring you to the light. I'm not here to show you Jesus. What about the folks who are vulnerable to it, though? Who are now seeing? Let's let's assume that they've not. They've not gone down the rabbit hole. They're not on Reddit. They're not in these forums. But they are reading the Washington Post, where this article appeared, and they are saying, mm. I- "I'm I'm like one of those 31 guys." I have not had sex in a year. I would like to have a girlfriend, but I can't get one. Um, maybe there is something to it. Maybe it's a problem in society that's not me. Um, how do we counter the narrative that comes out of these studies with the people who are vulnerable to that narrative? Right. And I think it's, you mentioned earlier, you have a toddler, so do I, right? Like we, these assumptions about sex and gender get baked in pretty early. And I think what we need to do is, A, continue to do feminist work, continue to make that publicly available. Men aren't stupid. You know, they can they can read feminist work just as well as anyone else can. Um, Some of them will make the choice driven by what they believe to be their own self-interest not to engage with it. But others are perfectly capable of doing the right thing. Again, I trust people to, to come to their own moral conclusions. And I think that, you know, don't murder people is pretty much it's it that's one of the big ones <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know but um it's it's about rewiring how we talk about sex about gender about what to do when you're lonely about what your entitlement is mm. you know to another person's body from i mean it starts so early my daughter when she was 2 years old had like a little boy following her around the classroom, yanking on her hair. And the teacher said, well, he really likes her. And we just, you know, we took her aside for a day and we told her if he ever touches you and you don't like it, scream as loud as you can. And it'll be a useful lesson for him. And it'll be a useful lesson for you. (laughs) Both of you are going to learn that nothing good happens when you don't respect another person's bodily autonomy. And that's like teaching our kids from an early age to reject that idea of sex as dominance and sex as an entitlement and sex as a status symbol and other people's bodies as essentially just resources for the most powerful person around to grab and use as they please. That's going to be a lot more useful than me coming to you when you're 23 years old and you're already, you know, angry and bitter in the way that a 23-year-old is and you're starting to look at these shitty websites. All I can say at that point is you're an adult, man. Get off that fucking website. Go, you know, go talk to some people. Jude, thank you for this. Really appreciate it. Very insightful. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you. I feel like I've just, I've just radicalized some of them right here because that was sort of a mean conclusion. Well, it's not though. I mean, it's, it's a proper point that that people of a certain age need to be able to make their own decisions and their own and own those responsibilities and and the whole idea for this interview came out of the thought that why are we catering to people who have shown no interest in helping anyone else right and like i absolutely sympathize and empathize with the desire for human connection we all need that everybody needs community everybody needs care everybody needs people around them who are going to watch and see if they fall down. And, you know, the the rising numbers of young people without friends, to me, is, is more concerning than the rising number of people without girlfriends. Because, you know, we teach men that the only person you're ever allowed to talk to about your feelings is your girlfriend. And that's not a healthy model for either of you. 
you know, so I think that, you know, encouraging young people to seek out that care and connection, that makes sense. Patriarchy, dominance, misogyny is not about care and connection. It's about owning and possessing and controlling another human being. And if you have substituted your need for care with the need to do harm, then that's a place where you are eventually going to have to come around on that yourself. You're going to have to want to fix you because expecting the culture to fix you is a little bit, you know, people are putting themselves out there to get hurt and there's no guarantee you're going to turn around. Lots of empathy for loneliness, no empathy for sexlessness. (laughs) That's how I feel anyway. (laughs) Jude, thank you again for this. Oh, thank you so much. That was Jude Doyle. If you liked listening to him, you can check out judedoyle.medium.com. That was the big story. After our episode on grocery prices and inflation and profiteering, we got a few comments asking about gas prices and isn't that essentially the same thing? It very well may be, but we try to stick to one subject at a time so we can get somebody who's explored that in depth. In related news that I will let you judge for yourself, Shell yesterday reported profits of $9.5 billion in the third quarter, compared to $4.1 billion in the same quarter last year. Huh. Interesting. You can find The Big Story at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us anytime on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn, or by emailing us hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course... Call, leave a voicemail, so we have something to listen to when we're not listening to podcasts. The phone number is 416-935-5935. If you are listening in a podcast player, I think it's probably Apple, at least that's what the stats tell me. If it's not, great, and if it lets you, leave a rating and a review. If you're on Apple and you haven't reviewed us by now, what are you doing? Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a safe weekend and a happy Halloween, and we'll talk Monday. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.